Father in heaven, you've been so good to us. We've learned so many, so many good things. We've been challenged as we have searched our hearts. And Lord, we were tarrying for one more session because we want to understand from Jesus' life what a deeper prayer life looks like. So, Father, I pray that you would add your spirit to this presentation, that you will send the message home to our hearts, and that we would yearn for an experience like Jesus. So, Lord, speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Ellen White tells us in the book Desire of Ages, page 83, this is a, a fairly popular quote. It says this, It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in the contemplation of the life of Christ, especially the what? The closing scenes. Listen to this. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. Okay? So this is a piece of advice for your devotional life. She says we should spend a thoughtful hour. Now the emphasis is not on the time. It's the word hour in the general sense of the term. It could be more than an hour. It could be less than an hour. But she says it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour in the contemplation of the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. One of the most richest experiences, and I go back to this many times in my personal devotional life, is going through the last 48 hours of the life of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew and John. And to take it point by point, verse by verse, scene by scene, and to let my imagination grasp what's going on there. And as I'm going through this story, I'm asking, my, I'm asking the Lord, Father, please speak to me through this story. Help me to understand what Jesus went through so that I can have a deeper prayer life and a deeper devotional life with you. So this is a great piece of advice for your devotional life, to take the closing scenes of Christ's life and let the imagination grasp each scene. She goes on, listen to this. If we would be saved at last, we must learn. We what? Must learn the lessons of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. She says, if we would be saved. How many of you want to be saved? Every hand up. We all want to be saved. She says, if we want to be saved, then we must learn the lessons at the foot of the cross. Taking it scene by scene, point by point, going through it and let the imagination grasp what's going on there so that we can become more like Jesus. So what I want to do in our final session here, a deeper prayer life, is I simply want to look at the closing prayer of Jesus' life and what that means to us. 
So take your Bibles and go with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. We already had a devotional on this, so we won't spend too much time in the details, but I just I, I want to go through this. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. The Bible says this. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, the same, prayed saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Approximately between the hours of nine o'clock and midnight on Thursday evening, only hours before Jesus was to be crucified, Jesus invites his disciples to enter into a time of prayer together with him. We already know the story. They go back and forth. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him to, uh, you know, the more secluded part of this prayer. And as they're spending time in prayer together with one another, we find the disciples fall asleep, as we know in the story. Jesus comes back and he wakes them up and he says, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. They fall asleep again. He comes back and he wakes them up. They fall asleep again. The third time he comes, he says, sleep on and take, the, take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and he is, that, he is here that doth betray me. Now, I want you to notice something here in the book, Signs of the Times, December 2 of 1897. It says this, at the end of an hour, Jesus feeling the need for human sympathy. Now, again, I want to emphasize this. Jesus' prayer in the garden wasn't just very quick. She says, at the end of an hour. So it was at least an hour long. At the end of an hour, Jesus, feeling the need for human sympathy, rose from the ground and staggered to the place where he had left the three disciples. He longed to what? He longed to see them. She says that he was yearning for human sympathy. He wanted to see his disciples. He was looking for human support at this time, this dark time in his life. But she goes on. His human nature yearned for human sympathy. He longed to hear from them words that would bring him some relief in his suffering, but he was disappointed. They did not bring to him the help he craved. Instead, what does she say? She findeth them, or he findeth them, asleep. 
What was Christ looking for when he came back to his disciples? He was looking for human sympathy. He was looking for compassion. He was looking for comfort from his disciples in this dark hour of his life. He wanted to hear from them some words that would be encouraging, but she says he findeth them asleep. Now listen to this. Testimonies, volume 2, page 205, it says, He came to his disciples and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. Listen, by these sleeping disciples is represented a what? Now, I referenced this yesterday. She says, by these sleeping disciples is represented a sleeping church. When the day of God's visitation is nigh, it is a time of clouds and thick darkness. When to be found asleep is most, what? Perilous. So what she's telling us here is the, the sleeping disciples is a representation of the sleeping church. Sleeping at the most perilous time in earth's history. Now, what I want to do in our time here, uh, the brief time that we have together, is I want to do a little comparison. There was a time of prayer that was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed, the disciples slept. How did that play out in the last 48 hours of the life of Christ? What happened in the life of Jesus and what happened in the life of the disciples as a result of what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane? I think you already know, but we're going to look at this from Scripture. So she says that sleeping disciples represent a sleeping church, sleeping at the most perilous time of earth's history. They slept away their opportunity to gain the strength and encouragement that they desperately needed in this dark hour of their life that was closing in around them. Desire of Ages, page 713, it says, It was in sleeping when Jesus bade him watch and pray that Peter prepared the way for his what? His great sin. Now, we looked at this yesterday, and it's the same thing for us. It's in sleeping that we prepare the way for our great sin, which means that if we don't sleep and we spend the time in prayer that we should, we are preparing the way for, instead of sin, we're preparing the way for victory. And that's what Jesus did. As he spent that time with his father in the garden, he was preparing the way for victory. The disciples were preparing the way for the great sin. So I want to first look at Jesus very quickly here. There are three characteristics that we find in the prayer of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Three characteristics. Characteristic number one is a characteristic of thy will be done. That's the first characteristic that we find. The most obvious that anybody can see when we look at the story of Jesus in the garden. Everybody can see this as they read this story. So let's just review it very quickly here. And he went a little further and he fell on his face, prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. What was Jesus asking for in this prayer request? He was asking for the cup to what? Pass away. Was that according to the Father's will? No. He was asking for something that was not according to the Father's will. But he, he clarifies it by saying, Not my will, but thine be done. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he left them and went away again 
praying this, uh, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. It's interesting, as you, as you follow the prayer of Jesus, and you can do this in your devotional time as you take it scene by scene, as you look at these three prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what you find is, as it progresses, his prayer becomes less about what he wants and more about what his Father wants. Remember, prayer is not to change the mind of God, but prayer is so that my mind becomes in harmony with God's will for my life. And so as it starts off, Jesus is making his request. He's telling the Father what he would like. But as it progresses and as it moves forward, it becomes less about what he wants and more about what his Father wants. Unless we begin our prayers in this way, we have not yet begun to learn how to pray. Unless we have this attitude of not my will but thine be done, we have not learned the basic 101 principle of prayer. So that's the first characteristic. Let's look at the second characteristic, one that we may not be as, may not be as familiar. Characteristic number two of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, it is a what kind of prayer? It is an individual prayer. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, we just found, as we read a few moments ago, that Jesus did not want to take that cup and drink it. Jesus wanted it to pass away from him. But he said, not my will, but thine be done. Now, as Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is all alone. His disciples are sleeping. There's nobody around him. There's nobody there to come up to Jesus and put their arm around his shoulder and say, listen, Jesus, I'm praying for you right now. We found in the book Desire of Ages that that's what he was looking for. He was looking for human sympathy. He was yearning for some human companionship at this time, but there was nobody there. There was nobody to come to Jesus and encourage him in the darkest hour of his life. He was there all alone in the garden as he wrestled with the Father. All alone. All by himself. Ellen White tells us in the book Selected Messages, volume 1, page 122, there are persons in the church who are not converted and who will not unite in earnest prevailing prayer. Listen to this. We must enter upon the work How? How? Individually. We must pray more and talk less. There was nobody there to put their arm around Jesus. Incidentally, this quote right here comes from the chapter called uh, Great Revivals or something like that. Something about revivals. And so she's saying, listen, if you want to have a revival in your life, if you're wanting to have a revival in your spiritual walk, in your church, in your family, she says we must pray more and talk less and enter into this work individually. But too often, as I mentioned in my devotional this morning, our spiritual experience is based off of the people that are around us. And when the people that are around us are no longer there, our spiritual life begins to wane. But Jesus didn't allow his spiritual life to be dictated by what was going on around him. Jesus' spiritual life was entered into individually. Him and his father, he battled it out with him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And so the same thing should happen in our prayer life. Our prayer life should not be dictated by what's going on around us, the hypocrisy that's going on around us, the encouragement that's being spoken to us, the, 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 the discouraging things that are happening in our lives because of what other people are doing to us or saying about us. That should not dictate our prayer life. Our prayer life should be entered into individually, us and God, consistently walking and moving forward in our our, our spiritual life together with Him. Ellen White tells us in the book Testimonies to the Church, Volume 8, page 251, she says that if one person, I'm just summarizing here, she says that if one person earnestly seeks for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it will lead others to unite in that same prayer. And that will cause others to unite in that same prayer. And it's kind of a domino effect that we see. Just one person prevailing with God in prayer has the power to transform the life of somebody else so that they begin to pray the same prayer that was being prayed by the other person. And it's kind of a domino effect. And I began to think about this as a pastor. What would happen if we had 10 people in our prayer meetings who were praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? What would happen if we had 20 people praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? What would happen if our church was praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? She says it, it's a trickle-down effect. It affects other people, and they begin to pray for God's moving in their own life. Now, what would happen if we had a whole church that was praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? You know, Ellen White tells us that we will receive the latter rain in proportion, for which, in proportion to which we pray for it. If you're not praying much for the Holy Spirit, you won't receive much of the Holy Spirit. If you're praying for the Holy Spirit daily and asking God to give him to you, you will receive the Holy Spirit in a marked manner. But Jesus, as he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he moves into this prayer experience individually, not allowing what's going on around him to affect his prayer life with his Father. And that's difficult because we are creatures who like to have human support, just like Jesus did. But Jesus moved forward even though others were not there to support him. Characteristic number three of Jesus' prayer in the garden, characteristic number three is that Jesus was what in his prayer? He was earnest in his prayer. Listen to this. Luke chapter 22 and verse 44. The Bible says, And being in agony, he prayed what? He prayed what? More earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. A deeper prayer life is what we're talking about. This is a prayer experience that none of us have had. And the Bible tells us that as Jesus is praying for the third time, the Bible says he prays more earnestly as he starts and as he moves forward in that prayer time. It builds in a crescendo and it gets more and more intense, more and more earnest as he's praying to his Father, asking for strength to do his will. And the Bible tells us that it gets to the point where as he's praying to the Father, he begins to sweat great drops of blood. Now, I was curious about this whole sweating blood thing, and I thought, well, what's going on here? 
So I Googled it. I wanted to see what, what was out there. And apparently, it's actually a medical condition where people sweat blood. And it happens when somebody is put under great emotional or mental stress, acute fear, or intense mental contemplation. Under these certain circumstances, an individual will sweat blood. And what happens is the capillaries in the sweat glands rupture. And as a result of that rupturing, it is mixed with the sweat that is, that is excreted uh, out of the sweat glands. And so it appears like they are sweating blood. And Jesus was under such profound stress and mental contemplation in the garden as his prayer builds in its crescendo and he prays more earnestly, the capillaries in his sweat glands rupture and he begins to sweat great drops of blood that fall to the ground. That's how intense Jesus' prayer life was. It physically changed his body. Now here's something that's also interesting. People who experience this sweating of, of, of blood the skin becomes very sensitive as a result of this. So that adds something to the story as we're thinking about the closing scenes of the life of Christ, that the physical agony of Jesus began in the garden. It began when he started sweating great drops of blood. And when Jesus stood before Annas, the high priest, in the first of the six court sessions that would take place. And as he answers the question of Annas, the, the high priest, and, 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 and the attendant who's there smacks Jesus in the face because of his response to Annas, that was incredibly painful, not just from being smacked in the face, but because Jesus had just moments before been sweating great drops of blood. A deeper prayer life. This is something that we can't even fathom. Praying so earnestly that our physical body ruptures the capillaries in our sweat glands. But this is a deeper prayer life. This is a deeper prayer life. And, and I want to tell you something this afternoon. The prayer life that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane did not just happen at the spur of the moment. This happened after years and years and years of moving out from the world and spending that time in the closet together with his heavenly father. Praying for his will and not the, the father's will instead of his own personal will. Seeking wisdom from the throne room of grace as he entered into prayer. But Ellen White tells us in early writings, page 269, she says, I saw some with strong faith and agonizing cries pleading with God. Their countenance were pale and marked with deep anxiety, expressive of their internal struggle. Listen to this. Firmness and great earnestness was expressed in their countenance. Listen. Large drops of perspiration fell from their what? Foreheads. Now, I might not have the experience of sweating blood. 
But she does tell us that in the last days, there will be select groups of people who have such an intense prayer life with God, a deeper prayer life with God, that they will begin to sweat great drops of perspiration that will fall off of the tip of their nose, that will fall off of their forehead to the ground as they're pleading with the Father, desiring to do His will and not their own will. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is indeed a deeper prayer life. And it's an example for all of us. But I want to take this one step further. So we've looked at Jesus in the garden. We've looked at him in his prayer. But what was the effect or the result of Jesus' prayer? Let me tell you something. As you look at the last 48 hours of the life of Christ, this is what I have found in my study. It all happened or all started in the garden. Everything that Jesus did from the garden on was a result of the time that he spent with his father, the hours that he spent in the garden of Gethsemane. It was a domino effect as a result of that prayer time. But notice what the Bible tells us. As Jesus is there praying earnestly this third time and he's sweating great drops of blood, the Bible says in Luke chapter 22, 41 through 43, and when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Listen to this. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven to do what? What came from heaven? Bible says there was an angel that came from heaven to strengthen him. Listen to this. I don't have this on the screen, but I'll just read it to you. This is from Desire of Ages, page 692. And it says this. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hand, but to strengthen him to drink it with the assurance of the Father's love. You know, we just looked at how Jesus came to his disciples, and when he came to the disciples, what was he looking for? He was looking for human sympathy and compassion. He was looking for support from his disciples, and he didn't find it. But as he's there praying to the Father, the Father says, okay, I'm going to send an angel, and that angel is going to strengthen my son. He's not going to take the cup away, but he's going to strengthen him to drink it. Now she goes on and she says, Christ's agony did not cease when the angel came. But, the de- but his depression and discouragement, what does she say? It left. It left him. The storm had in no wise abated, but he who was its object was strengthened to meet its fury. He came forth calm and serene. A heavenly peace rested upon his what? blood-stained face. So we know this is after the third prayer, after he began to sweat great drops of blood, when he prayed the more earnestly. Then, after hours of prayer, the angel was sent. And this is the angel, as you look at it from the Desire of Ages, this is the angel that stood in the presence of God. His name is Gabriel. And Gabriel was the one who came to Jesus and strengthened him to drink the cup that the Father was asking him to drink. Jot this down in your notes if you would. I didn't put a slide up for this. Psalms chapter 34, verse 7. The Bible says, The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him and delivereth them. Now, underline or write down next to that passage, delivereth. The word delivereth. The word delivereth in the Hebrew 
It means to equip for war. What does it mean? To equip for war. So the angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him and delivereth them. He equips them for battle. And this is what's happening here in the garden. As Jesus is wrestling with the Father and as he's going through this prayer time in the garden of Gethsemane, God sends the angel to equip him for the war that is just in front of him. And this is what we have to look forward to as God's people because we're promised right here. Remember, we're looking for promises. We're promised right here that the angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him. The angels of God will come and they will surround God's children and they will equip them and strengthen them for the war that will come before them as they approach the throne room of God's grace on their knees praying for God's strength and will, uh, power to do his will. So... I ask the question then, what effect did the prayer in Jesus' experience in the garden, what effect did Jesus' time in the garden, rather, have on him? What effect did it have on him? Well, let's look at it. John chapter 18, verses 4 through 8. It says this, Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon him went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? So the prayer's already happened. The mob has now come. They're surrounding Jesus in the darkness of the night. It's just about midnight at this point. And Jesus comes out and says, Whom seek ye? They answered him and said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Listen to this. Listen to this. And as soon uh, then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backwards and fell to the what? To the ground. Now, Desire of Ages tells us what it was that made them fall to the ground. What it was that made them fall to the ground was the angel Gabriel came in between Jesus and the mob. And as the angel Gabriel moved in between Jesus and the mob, the mob fell back like dead men in the presence of this angelic being. But after that, Gabriel's presence begins to withdraw from the earth, and Jesus is left there alone. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, What? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these Go their way. Fascinating story here of Jesus. And we're looking at the results of the time that he spent in the Garden of Gethsemane and how that had an effect upon him as he entered into the time of great crisis in his life. We'll just go on here. Luke chapter 22, verses 49 through 51. The Bible says, When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest. I want to go back because there's something that I want to look at here. Go with me to Matthew chapter 26. I skipped over it, but it's worth going back and looking at. Matthew 26. I don't want to miss this point because it's too powerful. Matthew chapter 26. Again, we're looking at the, the results of Jesus' time in prayer in the garden. Matthew chapter 26, verses 49 and 50. Listen to this. The Bible says, 
And forthwith he came to Jesus, that is Judas, and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, what did he say? What did he say? What did he call Judas? He called Judas friend. He said, friend. Wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and what? Took him. Now, that word friend there in the Greek is a kindly address. Let me ask you a question. Would you call somebody friend who is betraying you to your death? Of course you wouldn't. You would refer to them as a enemy, of course. And you would probably be justified from a human perspective to call that person an enemy. But Jesus had just come from the garden praying for the will of the Father to be done. He has compassion for his disciples and he sees Judas, Judas coming, and he kisses the face of Jesus in that betrayal kiss. And while the, 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 the kiss mark is still on Jesus' cheek, freshly laid there from the lips of Judas, Jesus turns to him and he says, friend, in a kindly address. Wherefore art thou? What's going on here? Now, you might not think that this is an important thing to think about. But I ask you the question, put yourself in Jesus' situation. How would you have reacted? Just think. If you were in Jesus' situation right then and there, Judas kissing you, how would you have reacted? I want you to think about that for a moment. You might not think it's an important question to ask, but I believe it's very important. Because the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 10, jot it down, Matthew 10, 36. Matthew 10 and verse 36, the Bible says, And a man's foes shall be they, uh, or shall be, yeah, shall be they of his own household. A man's foes shall be what? They of his own household. Those that are the closest to us will be our foes in the last days. Jesus, as he's entering into his final crisis, his foe or his enemy is the one that's closest to him. It's Judas. What Jesus is telling us here is that every single one of us in the final crisis are going to have a Judas in our life. Somebody who betrays us for whatever reason. And I'm fearful that many of us are not ready to stand like Jesus did. We can't even retain sympathy, love, and compassion for our brethren now when they mistreat us and offend us over little things and talk about us behind our backs. We can't even have sympathy for them at that point. When they say offensive things, when they point out our inconsistencies in our lives, what's the first things we do? We get offended. That's the first thing we do. We get offended because of what's going on. We become upset and we stop talking to them or we do back to them what they've done to us. But Jesus called Judas friend. Judas, Jesus loved Judas. And I want to tell you something. What Jesus said to Judas did not come from a human lip, but it came from a divine lip that had spent time with God in prayer. And we can only have that love for our enemies if we have that prayer life that Jesus had in the garden. 
If we were like the disciples, sleeping during that crisis time, we will react like the disciples reacted. And here's what the Bible said they did. When they which were about him saw what would, what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priests and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear. And what did he do to it? It's funny, you know, uh, the disciples... They see Jesus, he's, he's, he's getting ready to be betrayed. They're laying their hands on, on Jesus, the mob, to take him away. And the disciples, all of a sudden, they're not sleeping anymore. They're wide awake. And they say, Lord, should we pull out our swords and fight for you? Peter doesn't even ask the question. He just pulls out his sword and hacks off the servant of the high priest's ear right off. And it's curious to me that the disciples, listen to me carefully, were willing to fight for Jesus, but they were not willing to pray with Jesus. And so many of us are willing to do for God, go for God, talk for God, preach for God, study for God. We're willing to do things for God and fight for Him, but we are not willing to pray with God. And it's because of this that the disciples reacted the way that they did. Now, the Bible tells us that when Peter cut off the servant's ear, what did Jesus do? He stuck it back on. That ear probably worked better afterwards than it did before. Put the ear right back on his head. And then he turns to Peter and he says, suffer ye thus far. In other words, he says, stop. Stop what you're doing. Now, we know from Scripture that Peter was a proud person. They were bickering amongst themselves who would be the greatest. What happens when you rebuke a proud person? What happens? They become offended. And Peter was offended. Jesus did not commend him for his willingness to fight for Jesus. Jesus did not commend him for his willingness to defend him with the sword. Jesus rebukes him, and then he reverses what Peter had done. He puts his, the ear back on the, the, the guy's head. An inspiration tells us this. Desire of Ages 697. In their indignation and fear... Peter proposed, who proposed? Peter proposed that they save themselves. Following this suggestion, they all forsook him and fled. Judas leads the mob that takes Jesus to the court hearing that would ultimately condemn him to death. Peter suggests that the disciples split and leave Jesus on his own. Two of Jesus' 12 disciples led the charge for the disciples to betray Jesus and leave him and for the mob to come and take Jesus away. And I want to tell you something, my friends. If we do not enter into the Garden of Gethsemane experience, 
in the last days we will e either be a Peter or a Judas. It is so plain when you look at the Garden of Gethsemane and how it plays out in the life of Jesus and the life of the disciples that that hours of prayer in the garden made all the difference in the world. Jesus was peaceful. He was calm. He was dignified as he entered into that hour of trial. Jesus goes from the hands of the mob and he enters into six different trials before six different individuals. And, and, and as he stands before these six trials, Ellen White tells us that the people who were there were astonished at his bearing. He had dignity. He had calmness. He was put together and he was in a form of God. And as they looked at him, Caiaphas, she tells us, as he looked at Jesus in his court session, Caiaphas was convicted just by looking at Jesus that he was the Son of God. The, the promiscuous crowd that was there around Jesus in Caiaphas' court, as they looked at Jesus, they said, surely we're not going to crucify the Son of God. He hadn't even said anything. Just the look of Jesus Calm and dignified and put together, not fearful, but depending upon his father. The disciples, on the other hand, you see Peter betraying Jesus. They're all scattered like sheep without a shepherd. They're in the shadows, fearful for their own lives. Why? Because they didn't spend that time with Jesus in prayer. How different it might have been. How different it might have been in the lives of the disciples if they had spent time with Jesus in the prayer of, gar of the Garden of Gethsemane. So I want to close this session by asking a question. And I want you to just think about it for a moment and just search your hearts. We look at Jesus' life, a deeper prayer life. That's how deep God wants us to go. But I ask you the question, where are you in your prayer education? Lord, teach me to pray. Where are you in your prayer education? Are you still in elementary school? Little kids school? Are you in grade school or high school for teenagers? Have you gone to college and, or university? Are you working on your master's or your PhD in prayer? Where are you in your prayer education experience? I want you to search your heart this morning or this afternoon and ask God in your brokenness and openness to search your heart and tell you exactly where you are in your prayer education. And whether you are at the bottom or close to the top, ask the Lord, Father, teach me how to pray as Jesus prayed. Teach me how to have a deeper prayer life as Jesus had a deeper prayer life. I want to take a couple of minutes for you to pray through that prayer and ask God to show you exactly where you are in your prayer life. And then I will have a closing word of prayer. 
So let's kneel together. Ask the Lord to search your heart. Ask the Father to show you, where am I, Lord, in my prayer education? And then ask Him to move you further forward to be more like Jesus. Father, we've had just a little glimpse into the life of Your Son. What a profound life He lived. What a great example He has left for us that we might follow in His steps. Father, if we can just have a tenth of the prayer life of Jesus, we would be so much better off. But Lord, we're even stretching for more than that. We want to have the deeper prayer life of Jesus. We want that experience. That gives us peace in the midst of the turmoil of our life. That gives us calm in the midst of the storm. That gives us love for our enemies. And brings conviction into the hearts of people whose presence we are in. Father, show us how we can make this a reality. We've looked at these tools. We've looked at several things. But Father, without your help and the Holy Spirit, these will just be dead principles, tools. Breathe life, Lord, into our prayer life. Breathe life into our devotional life. Breathe life, spiritual life, into our life. Lord, thank you for my friends who have been so faithful every day coming to this time of study. And Lord, I I, I sense that their desire is similar to mine and, and that is that we want to have a better prayer life. And Lord, I pray that as they go home, that as we all go our different ways, that we will be different because of what's happened here in the last two days in this room where the Holy Spirit has descended upon us. And I pray, dear God, that souls will be won into the kingdom of heaven because of the change that you are about to perform in our personal prayer lives. Bless each one of us, Lord. Keep us close by your side. Encourage us when we are discouraged. Strengthen us when we are weak. Guide us when we are confused. And at last, Lord, bring us into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for hearing this prayer and answering it. Because we pray it according to your will. And because we pray it in your son's name. Not our will, but thy will be done. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.